HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So I can ramble. All right. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. And when I'm not here at our studios, you can find me at one of uh, the Epicurean Group restaurants at Delanima, Lartuzzi, Lopicho, and Fora, um, or our new restaurant, Altalini, at the Highline Hotel, where I serve as beverage director for the group. Um, if you like what you hear uh, on In the Drink, you can listen to our past episodes either on iTunes or on www.heritageradionetwork.com. Org, where all of our previous episodes are archived. Um, excited today. Uh, today we have a, uh, uh, a great producer of bourbon that we have at pretty much all of our restaurants. We have Trey uh, Zoller, the founder and whiskey maker for Jefferson's Bourbon. Um, and uh, I can't tell you how much I, I really love these bourbons, and uh, I'm excited to have you in the studio today. Welcome. Thanks a lot. Great to be out here. Uh, you know, at, at our new restaurant, we uh, we at at Altalinia, we have the um, bourbon that you've recently released on the water. There's it has some like, uh, I, and I want you to tell me more about this because I was excited about it. I love the way it tastes. Uh, I love the the history of it or the story behind it. It's something that you actually bring out onto the water. It kind of replicates the way that an old school bourbon might have been made uh, a long time ago when it was actually shipped on the water. But t- tell us more about how this, this came to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't think about the history when I first put the product out. Oh, really? To but, me, I was like, oh, it must be because of the history. I wish I was that smart. Yeah. But it, it really goes to, it, it's kind of shown me why bourbon proliferated in Kentucky in the first place. But initially, um, I was lucky enough to go out on my friend's ship for my 40th birthday down in Costa Rica friend of mine named Chris Fisher, who is the expedition leader for O-Search, which catches, tags, releases, and gathers data on great white sharks. So we were down at Costa Rica fishing, surfing, 
sitting on the bow of the deck as a couple of Kentucky guys would do, drinking bourbon. And as we were drinking the bourbon, I watched the bourbon slosh back and forth in the bottle. And as I thought about it sloshing in the bottle, I thought it certainly would happen in, in the wood, in a barrel as well. So throughout the night, I was somehow able to convince him to take five barrels and put it on his ship. So over the next three and a half years, he traveled pretty much the world's oceans carrying these five barrels, or at least he did for the first two and a half years before I got a call saying that two of the barrels, the bands had corroded and burst. Uh, They mysteriously disappeared. Exactly. Sure. (laughs) I have my own theory on that. Uh, I call it Juan's share instead of the angel's share. (laughs) Because one of the deckhands named Juan seemed to know more about this bourbon when they finally brought it back to port than anyone else. So what happened, and why I thought that this might be a good idea, is it's sloshing around the barrel. It's accelerating the aging process because it's constantly in contact with the wood. So the more contact with the wood, the more flavors it's picking up, the more color. And uh, the wood actually acts as a filter, stripping out the stringency of the alcohol. So as three and a half years later, what we did is we initially put new fill bourbon in there. So it went in as clear as water. When we dumped it, didn't know what to expect exactly, but it came out, it was almost black, and it was very thick. It was almost syrupy. Um, we later sent one of the barrels back to the cooperage to have it reverse engineered, and they saw that the, car- the sugars caramelized in there like they'd never seen before. So as it passed the equator, it picked up you know, that heat really just baked in those sugars. Yeah, I know a Kentucky summer is, is really warm, but I bet nothing compared to a whole year in Costa Rica. I, th- I think, well, it was actually, it, was, it went down past the equator. It spent, uh, actually went through the Panama Canal six times during those three and a half years. So it, it really baked down there. And then after the bands supposedly corroded, they took it from the bow of the ship and put it into the boiler room, which is you know, often 120 degrees down there. So it was really baking. Not only was it baking and sloshing around in the barrel, but it also breathed in the salt air. So it picked up a briny flavor. It picked up a very caramelized, almost uh, dark rum kind of feel to Mm -hmm. it because of the thickness. And it was bourbon at heart. So it was almost like three spirits in one when you tasted it, when you got the results of it. Now, it, it seems more elegant than uh, the way you're describing when I taste it. Have, have you blended it down with some other? Or the, when, you, when you buy a bottle that, is that purely, it's, it's not as like dark and viscous. As no, a, so here's what we did. We, yeah. it was, I couldn't replicate it. You know, once, that was an experiment the first time we did it, the first voyage. Afterwards, we tried to, to see how we could do this on a little bit larger scale. So what I started doing was taking bourbon aged six to eight years in Kentucky and putting it on ships and sending it, it hits over 30 ports, crosses the equator four times, and hits five continents. So we put it in at about 125 proof. By the time it comes back to Kentucky, it's actually somewhere in the 120 proof range, and we cut it down to around 90. Um, in that time, it really picks up those flavors mm-hmm. that you described. And uh, it's been called salted caramel popcorn. I love it. It's one of the most unique bourbons I've ever tasted and is extraordinarily delicious. Um, now, can you tell us a little bit about how you, how you got started? Uh, I, I was um, looking at the Kings County Distillery released a, a book a few years back, and it, it has um, kind of a chart and the lineage of all of the different bourbons. And um, there's this, you know, there, most of the bourbon in uh, in America, it's all made in America, obviously, is, is made in 
in Kentucky, and ninety five percent of it just comes from a, a few kind of small handful of distilleries. And in their chart, I didn't I didn't see your bourbon at all. I was kind of surprised not not to see it. Can you can you tell us how you got started and and where you kind of sure. fit into the distillery chart that that exists in Kentucky? So I started the business in nineteen ninety seven and called it McLean and Kine. Uh, the McLeans were my mom's side of the family. The Kines, my dad's, that had both been in the bourbon business for generations. Um, actually, we can trace my mom's side of the family back to 1799 when my eighth-generation grandmother was arrested for moonshining and bootlegging. So growing up in Louisville, you're, you're surrounded by bourbon. It's kind of a way of life. If you went to my grandmother's house, she didn't ask you what you wanted to drink. She asked, how do you take your bourbon? And everything she cooked with, she had bourbon and doused with bourbon. Um, so I, when I left Kentucky, you know, I was looking for better bourbons, and you just couldn't find it outside of there. And I, I was privy to the fact that bourbon had been on a 30-year decline before I started the business. So there was a built-up inventory of great, super-aged bourbons that weren't being offered to the public. It was either being blended in with a younger bourbon, or it was just evaporating off into nothing. So I started, you know, I, I thought that there was an opportunity to come out, bottle up some of this great whiskey that I had access to, and, um, and offer it. So we did that with the Jefferson's Reserve, one recipe, one age. And uh, it, it was at a time that you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, people weren't drinking bourbon outside of the bourbon belt. I would bring it to friends' parties in D.C. or New York, and it would sit on the bar unopened, which vastly different from today. Now it's the first thing consumed. Uh, so not only was I able to buy this great bourbon that we use for Jefferson's Reserve, and I was able to buy younger stocks of that as well, but I was able to pick up different lots of bourbon. Mm-hmm. I'd get offered a 16-year-old bourbon, 500 barrels of it, or 600 barrels of a 14-year-old bourbon. Some great, great whiskey not quite enough to start a separate label, but the great offerings. So what I started doing was playing around with them and marrying them or blending them together. And I found that I could get more balance, more complexity by putting these different recipes together. So what I did then and what I continue to do is buy from different, different large distilleries and, and do, manipulate those bourbons in some form or fashion. Um, we now have a distillery that we bought into, Kentucky Artisan Distillery, and they are now distilling about 10% of what we will uh, produce or what's aging right now. But now, as these uh, large distilleries have seen their own demand increase astronomically in the last decade and a half, how have they been able to assure you that you can still get the, the supply that you need? Well, we have contracts. So we've got contracts. Okay. And, uh, you know, Again, I've been doing it for almost 20 years now, so I've been doing it much longer than it, bourbon's impossible to get. I get calls weekly from people asking to source bourbon and, or how do I get into the bourbon business. Um, but these relationships that I've established over the last 20 years, I'm still able to get people to, you know, we've recently bought some older bourbon, much, you know, you know, very old bourbon. We released two years ago a 30-year-old bourbon. So we're still able to get some older juice, and I've got contracts where we're having new fill made for us. Mm-hmm. You know, as we now have a distillery, that initially that's what I wanted to do, was build my own distillery. And I, I learned pretty quickly 
I'll never be able to do it as consistently or economically as the big guys do. As you said, that lineage, that tree that you, you referenced earlier, there was really eight distilleries that, uh, that really endured over the last you know, 50 years. My dad wrote a book, Bourbon in Kentucky, where he identified over 2,500 distilleries, legal distilleries in Kentucky prior to Prohibition. And those ones that made it you know, have generations of knowledge and have put hundreds of millions of dollars into R&D. And they've really perfected the science of what bourbon making and distillation is all about. So I kind of looked at it, and I look at it as nature versus nurture. The, the nature is the distillation. And nurture, and most distillers will say 70 to 80% of what bourbon is comes from the maturation process, where the heart and soul of bourbon comes from once it hits the wood. So I wanted to concentrate my efforts on that nurturing process. So with our Jefferson and Jefferson's Reserve, it's done more as a blending. So I'm taking four different recipes of different ages and bringing them together to get a certain uh, style or flavor profile. So with our Jeffersons, it's very approachable, mm-hmm. very fruity. With our Reserve, again, it's four recipes of older ages, and it's more complex, more sophisticated. Now, I'd love to try to figure out why I like your bourbon so much. I mean, anyone can buy distill it and and blend it but you know you're saying that you guys are particularly talented blenders i have to think that that the the actual sourcing of the of the spirit of the white dog i guess it is when when you buy it and it's it's unaged that has to be an, an important part of it but if you're buying from these these super large distillers and it's somewhat of a neutral product at that time then well no that's not necessarily the case again it's mm-hmm. different recipes and what we do is we one of the four products that we have is over 50% of the total. So that gives us the consistency. And then we're bringing in these other recipes that are going to have different flavors. So when you have one distillate from one recipe, you're going to have one dominant flavor. By blending or bringing them together, you're able to get flavors throughout. You're able to get big flavors up front, some weight, mid-palate, and then the finish that you're looking for. So, yes, you know, like cognacs or a lot of winemakers have been doing for centuries, it's the blending. Um, a lot of in scotch, a lot of the, the whiskey maker is it's not the distiller. It's the person that's blending it together. So I think with our Jefferson and Jefferson's Reserve, it, it is the result of mm-hmm. blending. Now, I, we are buying from other distillers, and they, they make great products, but we're trying to... We're taking those products and adding steps and putting time and effort into it afterwards. We've now got 11 different types of Jeffersons. And still, my most difficult job is the blending aspect and bringing in those four different recipes for Jeffersons or Jeffersons Reserve. You know, it's 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 a, not a science so much as, you know, we're with the ocean, you know, we're putting on a ship. We've got the, the route down so each time we're putting a batch together it takes a lot of work and it's still my dad laughs at me he looks at me all the time as i'm doing it. he's like trey you look confused and i am because it's it's a difficult process putting that together yeah and what what did your folks do other than your dad writing uh writing this book about bourbon what i'm sorry you say your dad must be really proud that that you started this you know it sounds like he had a huge bourbon interest it was was he involved in the bourbon oh, yeah, industry should, in any way not not until 
he and I, he actually helped me start it. He was with me for about the first two years, and then he went off and did other things and really started writing books on bourbon. So uh, prior to that, he was in telecommunications and, and an attorney. So he loves it. He's eaten up with bourbon now. Um, actually, he his hobby is going to different courthouses, going through the records, and then going out to old distillery sites and trying to find out where they where they were and what their output was and it's uh <laughs> he really geeks out on it that's that's really cool now you touched on this uh a little bit earlier and you said that um when you started you couldn't get people to to drink bourbon and now they're you know that you can't produce enough of it almost um so we know that there's a huge increase in the demand for bourbon but what's the why why do you think this has happened you know, it's almost a perfect storm of a number of different influences that, that have changed. Um, one, people started offering better bourbons, like ourselves, and uh, a, a number of people were out there that started looking and doing single bottle barrelings, or excuse, bottlings, as well as small batch bottlings, so there were better products. Also, when the downturn in the economy came, you know, people started looking for value. And vodka, you know, there, there's... It was not valuing it. There's a lot of... It's more expensive to put bourbon in a bottle than any other spirit. You know, we have to buy new barrels. We lose so much to evaporation. Most of our product, we've lost half the yield by the time we put it into the bottle. And certainly the madman effect was an influence. Um, And then... Is that something that that bourbon distillers actually speak about, the madman effect? You know, yeah, I think so. People, it was all of a sudden, it was cool. And then certainly with the mixology and the classic cocktails Mm -hmm. coming back, if you look at classic cocktails, bourbon and rye were mostly the basis. So people started looking back at, you know, brown liquors and whiskeys and American whiskeys specifically. But I think more than all of that, it's your smartphone. There's so much information at the touch of your finger that, you know, as I've referenced vodka earlier because it was such the dominant spirit prior to, you know, what are you going to learn about vodka? It's five times distilled or six times distilled. With bourbon, there's so much that goes into it. There's so much of a story in each different brand. And people want that knowledge. And once you gain that knowledge, you get that thirst for it, you want to find out more. And it's really gone from, you know, Prior to that, people used to drink one product. You know, they were brand loyal. Now, most people that drink bourbons have a bar full of bourbons, and they've had different ones, and they're proud to tell you about each one and show what's distinct about that. So it's it's that knowledge, that education that people get. The more they get into it, the more they can identify flavors that they're looking for. And uh, reference, they're able to geek out on it a little mm-hmm. bit. And, they, you know, it's kind of sexy, you know, just that information about it. Great. And just to uh, one, one last question, we'll go for a break. Would you, would you characterize your bourbons as being in any distinct style? Uh, you know, we have 11 different types of bourbon, so it's hard to, to wrap them up as a group. Mine, I think, are more flavorful. They're not dominated by one flavor. Um, I would say there's more fruits that come out. Mm-hmm. The bottle you have in front of you specifically is just an explosion of fruits and if we're going to take a break, I guess we can talk about that one after. All right, that's a great that's a great segue. So we'll take a break on on that, and uh, we'll be back more with Trey Zoller from uh, Jefferson's Bourbon. Mm-hmm. 
And this one's called Don't Marry Mermaids by Mamarazzi. We'll be right back. Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost be damned, taste is everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. <laughs> All right, and we are back on In the Drink uh, here with Trey Zoller from Jefferson's Bourbon. And... Uh, during the break, Trey poured me a, a little bit of his uh, brand new release, the Groth Reserve Cask Finish, which I have in my uh, mason jar right here. Um, it smell it smells awesome. You definitely get that kind of vinous, whiny uh, flavor to it. Whiny in a good way, not in a bad way. <laughs> right. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. When I'm not drinking bourbon, I like big cabernets, and I was turned on to Groth Cabernet a few years ago. And really, really liked it. Um, I had a friend, a colleague that, uh, that knew the winemaker out there. And he was able to, he asked them if we could have some of the barrels that they were taking out of rotation. So typically these barrels, French oak barrels, housed and aged uh, the Groth Reserve for a couple of years. And they sent us the barrels, wet barrels, that I put in what I call hot boxes, which are nothing more than containers that we put out in the distillery yard to really sweat the bourbon out of the barrel and or sweat the wine out of the barrel. So we filled these barrels with the bourbon, put them in the hot boxes in June, and kept it in there for 10 months. At first, it sweat the wine out so much, it, it really was separate. It almost tasted like having a glass of Cabernet and then a shot of bourbon on the back end. And over the months, it really melded well together and balanced out. So today what you have is you know, you're able to pick up these flavors, again, that you don't get typically in bourbon. A lot of black cherry, a lot of blackberry flavors that really come out, and it, it just kind of explodes with flavor. Yeah, that's extraordinary. And I have to admit that I am not a big Cabernet drinker. And so I saw this and was like, hmm. Not that you know, not that excited about you know about the prospect, but it it kind of mel melds so well. The flavors are so complementary, and this product is delicious. This is really an easy to love bourbon, even at you know ten in the morning. <laughs> right, uh, I thought so as well. And typically, we experiment with a barrel or two when we're yeah. looking at doing something. We got a hundred barrels from them, and it took them out there right away, and. It actually peaked about seven months. We kept it in there for 10 months. And it's, it's really, as you said, it's a complement of flavors. Mm -hmm. And bourbon, 
So it had to start its life in American oak. Is correct. that correct? And then and in, you finish it in this in this French oak. It was in it was Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey aged in Kentucky in new charred white oak bourbon barrels right. for six and seven years prior to bringing in the Groth barrels and finishing it off there. Now I, mean, I probably should have started the the uh, the show with this, but. Uh, but it kind of leads into into another question. So, um, what is, what is bourbon? Bourbon is uh, you know a distilled product that is made from fifty one percent corn, aged in as you said heavily charred uh, new American white oak barrels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people think that that even people who you know work for me when I do training say where where is bourbon made and they say it has to be made in Kentucky and and that's not the case at all right not the case you know, at all uh, bourbon can be made anywhere uh, in America um, and we're you know we're seeing certainly in New York and and in other parts of the country as well people releasing these kind of new new bourbons mm-hmm. um, and what what are your thoughts on this movement for these kind of small distilleries to release bourbons that certainly don't have the kind of age characteristics that, that yours do. And I think that's, that's kind of the problem. I think a number of these distilleries are going to produce wonderful whiskeys, but they need time in the wood. And there's, there's no shortcut for that. You know, even our ocean that really accelerates the aging process as we saw the first time as we put it in new charred white or put new fill in, now we're putting six to eight-year-old bourbon in it. You've got to, I don't want to shortcut it. That's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to, to take any shortcuts. And you can't with bourbon. It needs time in the wood. And I think some of these new distilleries, craft distilleries are popping up. are going to have fantastic whiskey. But they've got to have the patience to let it age properly to get there. Do you feel like there's a minimum amount of time that you should be able, you should, by law, it's only like, Two or three years, right? Correct. If uh, it's under four years, you have to put it on the label, but it's got to be over two years. You know, most of your bottom shelf Kentucky bourbons from the big guys are at least four years old. And I would put that four year old bourbon made by the big guys in Kentucky against almost any craft distiller that has younger bourbon out there. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the craft guys that have bourbon that's aged older than that, phenomenal whiskey, and it's going to be even. You know, they're going to be fantastic, but it needs proper time in the wood. You know, as I said earlier, most distillers will say 70 to 80 percent of what bourbon is comes from the maturation process. It gives it its heart and soul. It gives it. That's what bourbon is. So once it has time there, they're going to make some great products and I'm all for it. So, so obviously, you know, this, this ocean project has been, uh, a, a, it seems like it's been a successful one, but it's opened your eyes to maybe other ways of, of aging, uh, bourbon. Do you believe in any way of, uh, maybe accelerating the process are you are you working with temperatures even at you know even at the aging room i am experimenting with different environment and agitations for the maturation process mm-hmm. uh not so much to accelerate it uh because everything that we're putting out right now is at a minimum of six years six to 30 years I think the environment and agitation makes a big difference. And you know, it helps that my dad say Bright's book on bourbon history and looking back at it. But the reason that bourbon was aged in Kentucky in the manner that it's aged in is practicality. 
you know, you've got a distillery, you're going to age it right next to it. It's expensive to transport it. And that's what was interesting about the Ocean Project. You know, when people started distilling on the western slope of the Appalachians, nobody was aging whiskey at that time. A barrel was a very expensive um, item. And the only, it was the only thing that they had to transport the whiskey. So when they started taking the bourbon to market by floating it down the rivers and then putting it on ships in New Orleans and sailing it up, it had the time to age for the first time. And it was aging like we age the ocean, where it rocks back and forth on the water. So I think people in New York and Philadelphia and Boston, when they got that Kentucky bourbon that had aged on the water, that's why they were saying, I want that bourbon from Kentucky. So, as you said, bourbon can be made elsewhere, and they, they're making good bourbon elsewhere. just needs time to properly age. Now, will there be other environments that seem to be better placed to age bourbon? Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Wow, time so, will tell. So, so, presumably, New Yorkers are drinking better bourbon than those down in Kentucky at that Back time. Back then? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if, they weren't aging it that long in Kentucky at yeah. the time, and it certainly didn't have time on the water, and then it didn't go around the streets of Florida and have that sun baking on it. So, yeah, I think so. Yeah. What, what are some of the pressing issues that you talk about with the other distillers when, when you get together? Is there something that, that's really kind of top of the mind for everyone at this time? Well, they, you know, we, we've had issues, believe it or not, in, in our supply chain. Just the cooperages, the barrels, are a big shortage of barrels right now because the bourbon industry has exploded. And in the last several years, all the large distilleries have at least doubled in their capacity to produce. And all the micros that have popped up, mm-hmm. the cooperages can't keep up. Um, the last couple of winters have been very harsh winters, a lot of snow. And there's not enough loggers to get into the woods to pull out enough wood that needs to be cured afterwards so there's actually been kind of a shortage in the supply chain just from the barrels and then you know it's trying to keep up with demand domestically bourbon has exploded and it's doing that across across the world as well so you know throughout bourbon's history there's been a cycle of boom and bust and the bust typically there's a reason for it prohibition um, World War II, we had to stop production at the time. In the 70s, people started going to you know, different types of products, and McDonald's exploded, and soft drinks and things like that. So, you know, actually, I, I flew up to D.C., and our mayor sat next to me the other day, and he asked me you know, where I thought we were in this bourbon renaissance. And you know, it's, we put it into football terms. We said probably the end of the first quarter, going into the second quarter. I think it's got a long way to go. Wow. And then what do you think, you know, we'll, we'll end on this question, but what do you think's coming up in that in the second quarter before halftime? You know, as, as there's been so much information, and as we've said, the, the bourbon consumer has become much more educated. You know, when... We've launched the ocean and the growth and, and a number of we're just about to launch our bourbon or our uh, wood experimental project. If I would have done that five years ago, no one would care. Now that consumer has such a thirst for what else is out there and what can be done to help. You know, I, I'm trying to respect the heritage of, of what bourbon is and the six laws that protect the integrity of it, but push the boundaries of it without bastardizing and I think where we're going to go is we're going to see people working with different finishes and how we can look at the 
the environment of where we're aging it to bring different flavors mm-hmm. into it organically not flavoring it with outside sources but what we can do with the wood to give different flavors sounds fascinating sign me up i think something that i'd be super interested in is maybe if there was an historical bourbon that maybe one that that your dad was particularly excited about uh and kind of reviving a very old recipe um maybe in, even in the days before bourbon was filtered um I think that would be super interesting for for people to try, especially when you have all that research uh, at your hands. Sounds like the next project's on the books now. <laughs> all right. Trey, thank you so much for, for being on In the Drink. Uh, we, I, I love Jefferson's bourbon, and I, I continue continue to love it, and uh, you can certainly find it at, at all of our restaurants. And that ocean we have we have at Alta Linea, um, so excited, excited to pour it there. Beautiful. Thanks a lot for having me, Joe. Thanks for supporting us. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. This has been In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.